freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Roxana Espos, Palace Shaw, Light Ailey, and Bernadine Dorn, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're transmitting, as always, on the Freedom Frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet. We're broadcasting from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, lands stewarded for millennia by many indigenous peoples and lineages, including the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa, as well as the Menominee, Miami, Ho-Chunk, Sac, and Fox Nations. These human beings raised their children here, created their communities, made sense and meaning of their lives together, experienced the flowing and the passing of time, planned for the future, and buried their dead here. I acknowledge them and thank them all, and I apologize for the actions of my settler colonial forebears, and I join in solidarity in seeking truth, repair, and reconciliation. We'll be heading over to the Dazzling Pilsen Community Book soon, a regular stop on our Freedom Tour, for a conversation with Janie Paul, Professor Emerita at the School of Art and Design at the University of Michigan, and curator and co-founder with her late husband, Buzz Alexander, of the Exhibitions of Artists in Michigan Prisons, a project of the legendary Prison Creative Arts Project. Her beautiful new book, Teaching Art in Prison, Survival and Resistance is filled with images of the extraordinary creations of people caged inside the Michigan prisons. It's an absolutely stunning achievement. But before we go there, before we head over to the bookstore, we'll pause for a moment for an update because the genocide in Gaza is ongoing and because Palestine is still front of mind for us and we hope for you too. So Bernadine is joining me, and we have been, I think, obsessed, um, focused, uh, determined um, around the ongoing genocide, pre-announced genocide in Gaza. And as I noted last time, by the time you hear this, it's going to be worse. So last time, I think I was talking about 15,000 dead. There are now 20,000 dead Palestinians in Gaza, 60,000 wounded, 1.9 million people displaced. That's over 85% of the population. And that's mass displacement, indiscriminate bombing, which anyone who's paying attention has seen. The most dangerous place to be a child in the world, according to the United Nations, is Gaza. Contaminated water, diarrhea, tens of thousands of respiratory infections, and the highest proportion of households facing crisis levels of hunger ever recorded by the UN. Starvation is being used as a weapon of war, which is a war crime. 
and it's going on right now, right in front of us. So Bernadine and I have been in the streets. Uh, we have joined the, the brilliant, uh, courageous people from Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voice for Peace. We've also been studying. We continue to study, and I urge you that you must kind of, at this moment, gather together with other people, read, study, learn, and also get into the streets whenever possible. Have, make a difference, make noise. But one of the things that Bernadine and I just read was a piece by Masha Gessen, which is an extraordinary piece in The New Yorker, and I urge you to look for it. And so Bernadine, when you think about the Masha Gessen piece, what's, what's one takeaway you have from it? This piece is so extraordinary. I urge you all to read it, and I'm grateful that The New Yorker saw fit to publish the whole thing. And they did so in spite of the fact that she, and I guess they knew this, but she took a lot of shit for it. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But what's one takeaway you have? It's hard to have one bell, but here. She notes in this piece that the Palestinians remember 1948 as the Nakba, a word that means catastrophe in Arabic, just as Shoah means catastrophe in Hebrew. She's not only looking at this, she's saying that because she's taken a good look at catastrophes in the last three centuries in Europe and around the world. And she notes that Israel has wrapped itself in a garment of being from the worst catastrophe ever. And she's not ranking catastrophes, but she's noting the suffering that one country or one peoples have put on another. And she's saying, where will it stop if it's a competition for how painful it can be? I think what's really important about that is the myth that the Holocaust in Europe was a singular catastrophe. There's nothing ever been like it before or since or ever could be anything like it. It makes it um, myopic. It makes it nearsighted. You can't see. If you buy that myth, you can't see the reality before you. And I love her sentence that a victim can also be a perpetrator or vice versa. That is, human beings can be and often are both. Well, that's how she ends, and she certainly said that about her home country of Russia, but also about pretty much every other country that you, you can look at, Ukraine among them, um, but certainly Palestine and Israel among them. Well, you know, I mean, I think that um, what's important is that if you freeze the, the Holocaust in Europe as the singular event, you can never learn from it. You can't learn the real lessons. And when you say never again and narrow never again to mean the Jewish people should never face, uh, you know, a catastrophe, a Shoah again, then you don't allow for the possibility that other catastrophes not only have gone on, like settler colonialism in the United States, wiping out native peoples or slavery in the United States and the, the uh, African slave trade, the Atlantic slave trade, these things also uh, get wiped out if you say, here's evil at its most extreme. And you let everybody else off the hook because Germany is the one frozen example of a perpetrator. But you know, you and I, for example, we went a couple of years ago to Kenya um, to visit relatives. And we, we decided to read an extraordinary book then about the, the catastrophe that England visited on Kenya after World War II, where they decided to wipe out, ghettoize, demonize, and then wipe out the Kukuya people. 
And that's another example in modern history of a catastrophe of a Shoah. Well, I think that her point is in part that there are many examples. Certainly that example of Kenya, which you and I were somewhat ignorant of when we went there, until we went there. Um, But it's also true, we can look anywhere, as you know. And so the reckoning that's happening about U.S. history, which is, you know, ridiculed and and, uh, made foolish so often in the media here, but which has been a profound undertaking, really, to rethink the colonial and the racist history of the United States. Well, it's not just ridiculed, it's contested in the media and it's contested in our politics. How much do we account for um, the genocide of the native peoples and the building the wealth of the country on the backs of (coughs) black bodies? And I think the the contestation is everything from the 1619 Project to Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's Marvelous Indigenous Peoples of the History of the United States, and so on. Well, the, cont- the contestation is everywhere, among librarians, among teachers, among uh, parents, people who, you know, trying to talk with their family members about who we are and what happened here. And that's, I, I think, been a terrifically healthy conversation, even when politicians seize on it and turn it into a folly, you know. You know, I've been thinking about, you know, a minute ago I gave uh, what we all do traditionally, which is to give a land acknowledgement whenever, wherever we gather. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons that groups like JVP and SJP and the dissenters have been able to mobilize so quickly a true understanding of what's going on in the Middle East rather than buy into the myths of, you know, a besieged democratic country. If you do a land acknowledgement here, as I just did, and you note the Potawatomi and the Ojibwe and the Odawa, well, what does it mean in a place like Jerusalem or a place like, you know, um, Hebron? I mean, you know, it's the same same thing. Settler colonialism looks remarkably the same wherever and whenever it pops up. Well, it tends not to by the people involved, and that's part of what is so brilliant about the Gesson article, I think, because she jumps into many controversial things, and I'm sure she and the New Yorker are going to have a lot of letters to the editor well, they already in have. response. Yeah. Exactly. They're going to continue to have it because it's not an easy swallow. You can seize on the sentence here, but um, but she's making a, a long argument that you know that people who have been oppressed can and do somewhat regularly become oppressors of the most violent and virulent and hateful kind where you can't imagine such a thing. So I think that's a major, major point of the article and something that everyone should get it, get their hands around. The Holocaust of Europe was a horrible, brutal, anti-Semitic um, nightmare, a, a real a real showa, a real nakba. That also, of course, included, and we know this, but it doesn't, because it's come to be owned only by that group, don't mention the gypsies, the homosexuals, the people with disabilities who were in that same category. So, yes and no. But I, I would also say that what we have to grasp very clearly to, to oppose the mythology is that the Holocaust in Europe was not a singular event of human cruelty. 
that it has happened, it will happen, it does happen, it is happening. And we say never again. It has to mean for all people everywhere, all the time. Exactly. So, you know, there's another thing I want to get into a little bit, which is you and I have been marveling at how quickly opposition to this genocide has mobilized, how quickly the resistance rose up. And I think part of that, I was just saying maybe one reason for that is that land acknowledgments are common, especially among young people, among students. But what other factors do you think go into the the rapidity of the of the response? Well, I give lots of credit to the organizations you mentioned, Jewish Voices for Peace. I give lots of credit to Angela Davis, who has had a big impact on Black Lives Matter and uh, Undocumented and Unafraid, and the young people who've organized and and rose up over the last decade. And in that, she always centered Palestine, Angela, but also other leaders of that as a as an example that implicates everybody in the United States. It's our military weapons. It's our tax dollars every day that are going to a, a fair, fairly wealthy country, Israel. And we that it, that implicates us not just because we're humans on the planet, but because Israel wouldn't be Israel without the U.S. role in protecting it, in vetoing in the Security Council, and in giving billions of aid. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you're right to raise up Angela, who's raised the question of Palestine. And she's the first person I ever heard to do a land acknowledgement. That must be 25 years ago. But also, she raised Palestine to the fore again and again. And I think another factor in, in the 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 rapid response to this genocide is that most black intellectuals, uh, I mean overwhelmingly, um, understand uh, Palestine, understand Israel as an apartheid society and Palestine as an oppressed um, uh, people. Yes, and many people who go there, and I urge people who haven't to go there, I taught a course on Israel-Palestine, one of my last courses, and uh, we had to go there. But going there is so eye-opening and so shocking to anybody who knows one tiny crumb of reality in the United States about racism. It is a segregated society in every way. And you know, the other thing that I think we have to keep in mind is this notion that we talked about last time, but I think is central to the discussion, and that is, and I think Gessen does a brilliant job with this, is that anti-Semitism is not the same as anti-Zionism. You can be, no one should downplay or, you know, make light of anti-Semitism. It's a real living force, and it really is activatable. And if you talk about anti-Semitism in the United States, it actually doesn't come from people who are fighting for the right of Palestinians to live. It really comes from the far right. And that's where the anti-Semitism lives. And one of the odd ironies that Gessen gets into is the ways in which Israel has aligned itself in Europe and the United States with the most hard right groups, including anti-Semitic groups, because they have an overlap of interests in the colonial project. But I think it's very important that we really understand that you can be critical of Israel without being anti-Semitic, and that you can fight anti-Semitism and still fight against this genocide. Yes, I think many of the, that's why Jewish Voices for Peace is something to hold up here, not because they're the only ones in motion, but because they have 
argued and been clear, as have Palestine Legal and lots of other organizations, that anti-Semitism is unacceptable, must be fought, is a deep, as deep, maybe as deep as racism in the United States and and the rest of the world, and yet. It is not the same as anti-Zionism. Israel is a country and filled with contradictions and problems and relies on U.S. unconditional support. And that unconditional support is the ongoing genocide that we're watching. Yeah, and it's not just support for, you know, any country. It's support for a country that is an apartheid country. It's a colonial country. It's now a country engaged in genocide. So I think your points are hugely important. Um, You know, and you made the point earlier that I just want to underline as we come to an end here is that the U.S. is acting alone in the world in stopping uh, movement toward a ceasefire. It's alone in the world in standing up for Israeli aggression. It stands alone, and we should oppose our own government and work hard to end that. Here and abroad, a victim can be a perpetrator, and a perpetrator can be a victim. Okay, now let's head over to Pilsen Community Books. We're really excited to have Janie Paul here tonight to celebrate this beautiful book, Making Art in Prison, Survival and Resistance. And we do have uh, 24 copies up at the front if you'd like to check them out afterwards. Um, Without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce tonight's guest. Bill needs no introduction. Everyone's favorite rabble rouser and host of Under the Tree podcast. And Janie Paul is a painter, curator, and writer. She is the senior curator and co-founder with her husband, Buzz Alexander, of the Exhibitions of Artists in Michigan Prisons, founded in 1996, a project of the Prison Creative Arts Projects, which Buzz founded in 1990 at the University of Michigan. She is an Arthur F. Thurnau Professor Emerita of the Stamp School of Art and Design at the University of Michigan. Welcome, Janie. Thank you. We are going to get started, but I want a couple of preliminary notes. One is you're going to hear drilling. I was going to tell you about the drilling, but it's imposed itself already. They broke a line at the bar next door, and they said they'd try to hold off on the drilling, but apparently they're not holding off on the drilling, so we will accommodate. I also wanted to say that we're here at Pilsen Community Books, and for those of you who have been here before, welcome back. For those of you who have not been here, this is a really unique community institution. It is a public square, a public space, and as the public is being disappeared, as the public is being eclipsed, places like this are of utmost importance. And I say that simply to say, not only can we have a conversation like this and many other conversations, but the bookstore is a place where people come to really face one another authentically and have really important conversations. So I'm asking you to support the bookstore tonight. Here you are. And the best way to support the bookstore is to buy this book. In fact, we were talking earlier, this is an absolutely magnificent a coffee table book. It's a great Christmas present book. So buy two copies of the book, one for you and one for your mother-in-law or whoever, um, because it not only is a valuable 
resource in itself, but it supports this invaluable resource in Chicago. And if you want to buy another book, there's so many great books. Every time I look, oh, I just saw The Murder of Fred Hampton, and there's my book, Fugitive Days, right there. So if you if you buy any book at all, Janie Paul will sign it, right? Yes. Okay. So, so my point is support the bookstore, support this book, but support this institution as well. What we're going to do is have a bit of a conversation. Janie's going to read a bit, talk a bit, show a few slides, and then we're going to get into conversation. And very quickly, we're going to invite you into the conversation. It's an important conversation to have at this moment of things falling apart all over the world and of the incarceration nation moving forward kind of unchecked. Um, this book is a contribution to demystifying and as our friend uh, Ronaldo Hudson says demonstrification demonstrifying the people who've been labeled the worst of the worst this book is such an important contribution so without further ado Janie thank you and thank you Bill for and bookstore for inviting me I want to just start by acknowledging a few important people in the room I want to introduce my brother-in-law Jim Alexander and Carol joins. If you could just stand up, I want to acknowledge you because they, 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 they helped in the effort to make this book affordable uh, to both prisoners and prisoners' families and and working people. I want to acknowledge Matt Avery, who is the designer. Hey, Matt. Who designed this incredible book? Who designed this incredible book? And Michael Guarine, who helped produce this book of, of the publisher press and and my and my best friend from childhood martha mcclintock we've known each other since we were four and she uh helped me throughout the book and we've been sol in solidarity in the cause of social justice and creativity in science she's a famous it's scientist Okay, so in a few minutes, I will show some images uh, that are in the book because I want to show them right away because I want you to see how powerful they are. You may have an idea of what prison art looks like, and I, I think you may be surprised by seeing the images. But first, I want to tell you a couple of stories um, that, that sort of lie at the center of what this book is about and, and what I care about. So there's a man who is, was an artist in prison. He was double bunked at a time when the prisons were becoming overcrowded because incarceration was increasing and they moved from single bunking to double bunking, which meant that you're basically living in a room the size of a bathroom with another person. And often people were put together who were not compatible at all. And the guards sometimes do this knowingly. So my friend, Danny Valentine, was attacked by his bunkie in the middle of the night and was almost killed. He had his neck broken and uh, because the other guy wanted his potato chips and everything else that he had. So he's lying on the floor and the guard walks by and saves him, basically. But based on that incident, Danny decided he would never double bunk again. But it was against the rules to refuse to double bunk. So he always ended up in the hole, which is segregation, which is where, you know, the worst place, almost the worst place in the prison. But 
He was also in these exhibitions that we do every year. And I'll speak a little bit more about those later. But basically, we we do our my organization, the Prison Creative Arts Project, uh, has an exhibition every spring. And we, we travel around the state every year to select work for the show. So he wanted to do, he wanted to be in solitary so that he wouldn't have to double bunk, but he had to come out of solitary to do the artwork. So he put himself in the suicide room or the Bam Bam room, which is even worse than solitary. Electric lights are on all the time. You have nothing but a concrete slab and a poncho, no clothing. And most people couldn't endure this, but he, he stayed in there. And the reason why he went to the Bam Bam room instead of solitary was because you could just say, I'm not suicidal anymore. And then you could get out and you could make, he could make his art. So as I said, most people couldn't stand this, but what he did was that he lay there and he had an ongoing meditation that lasted for months where he built a house brick by brick. In real time, he went to the hardware store, he bought all the different screws and tools, he came back, he did every brick, mortar, and this went on for weeks, and then he envisioned, when the house was done, he envisioned people living, him living in the house. And this went on and on and on until he decided it was time to get out. My point is about the power of the imagination and that the title of my book is Making Art in Prison, Survival and Resistance. And this is one of the key stories about survival and also resistance. He never backed down from saying he wasn't going to double bunk. And this is what he did in order to survive. There is a man named D'Artagnan Little who was at level five, where he, it's the highest security level, and he he's not allowed anything up there. You know, just basically a little rubbery pen and a pencil, but he wanted to make things. So he asked his friends and family members to write to him on colored construction paper. And he chewed up toilet paper and used soap from the shower and fashioned sculptures. And then he melted the um, construction paper in water to create pigment to paint the sculptures. And these were in our show. So here's another example of this incredible ingenuity and imagination. And these are the kinds of things that drew me to write this book. Um, It's this hunger for the imagination to make things for art and the urgency that made me question, what is this? What is this about? How can I think more about this? How can I write more about this? And before I go on, I will show just just four images that are kind of representative of some different kinds of art. You can see in the book, there's over 200 color reproductions Um, I'm just giving you a little taste, and then we'll turn the lights back on, and and I'll talk a little bit more, and then Bill and I will talk. Um, This is a beautiful um, 
landscape painting. I'll talk a little bit more about landscape. I do want to say that um, most of these artists never were not artists before they came into prison, nor are they in any art classes. We do not do art classes in all prisons in Michigan. There are 28 prisons. We do some art workshops in very, very locally around Ann Arbor. But most people, most of the artists are learning from each other. This man didn't do art before he came into prison. And this is of the Osable River, which is a beautiful river in Michigan. And um, um, it's at the beginning of the book. And um, someone asked me, you know, you're a landscape painter. Why did you start? How does that connect to prison? And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a little bit when I turn the lights on. Can you see this clearly? Does it? What does it look like? Does it look like embroidery? Okay, it's actually colored pencil on black paper. This man, Billy Brown, was in a one of the only art classes that was at IMAX, Ionia Maximum Facility, taught by uh, a professional artist. And he wasn't doing well learning how to draw. And the teacher said, Billy, you've got to just find your own thing. So Billy told me that one day he just sat down and he prayed and he prayed to God, what, what can I do that's really mine? And he came up with what he calls Billy art. And he just started, he made hundreds of these. And what it is, is he took colored pencil and each mark uh, on there starts with a denser, a, a high, uh, denser and heavier weight and then gets lighter. And so it creates this feathery appearance and his idea of putting it on the black background adds to the drama and the depth of it. So it, this is an incredible example of ingenuity that drew me like what, you know, how do people think of these things? What are the circumstances that make people so um, brilliant, really? And uh, he, you know, he went on to make uh, many of these, and they were very, very popular at the show. Now, this is by Danny Valentine, the man I told you who um, did the meditation with the house, building the house. And he made this, it's four and a half feet long, and he made it when he was in solitary. And it's made out of toilet paper and glue. Wow. He, he, he like would chew up the toilet paper and make a kind of paper mache. And he collected soap from the showers over many months. And he created this. Um, he finished it outside in population because the guards were so enamored of it. They let him finish it. Um, and then he, he, he painted it and then sprayed it with um, kind of a, a black, to make it look like pewter. And that's why it's called Pewter Mermaid. So again, it's just this amazing kind of ingenuity. And then I wanted to show one of the many images that we see of about incarceration. And so this is this incredibly anguished and painful image with this brilliant title, Life Means Death. I mean, we are the only Western industrialized nation that has life sentences. And only recently did the Constitution rule that um, minors should not be charged with life without parole in prison. In Michigan, 
those people are being re resentenced, but there's still many of them in prison. And formerly, before the, the Supreme Court made that ruling, we were only one of two countries in the world that sentenced people under the age of 18 to life without the possibility of parole. So this artist, Yusuf Qualzell, known as Q, was a juvenile lifer, went in when he was 16, and he just got out about a month ago. And he's in his 40s now. So this is quite a, I think, quite an amazing piece with this young kid looking at what he what he sees. I want to say that Q came out incredibly strong. And I asked him a lot of questions. And he said, he always thought that he would get out. He somehow had the idea that he would not spend the rest of his life in prison. And eventually he did get out. So Bill had, had sort of suggested that I talk about how I came to this work. And there's a lot of reasons why I came to this work. But um, oddly, one of the reasons I came to it was because I was a landscape painter. And I was painting landscapes basically since I graduated from college. But I was also doing social justice work. And I always thought, well, what's, you know, I knew a lot of people who, artists, whose, whose artwork that they did in their studio merged with their social justice work. So, but I didn't quite understand what my connection was. Um, and so I'm going to read you a little bit from my book that sort of talks about this. It was the landscape paintings that were inspired by this personally iconic image that drew me into prison. When I moved to Michigan, Buzz, who was my husband, invited me to show slides of my paintings to the men in his theater workshop at Western Wayne Prison in Plymouth. These were men who Buzz had worked with for many years, mm -hmm. making stories from their lives into improvised plays, drawing the bonds tight between them. When my images appeared in the dark that evening in the prison basement, the projector humming quietly and the light beaming out from the woods and fields of my landscape paintings, I wondered what meaning they would hold for the men. Would men living in prison, mostly black and brown men from Detroit, relate to these New England landscapes? I was a middle-aged white Jewish woman raised in the footsteps of Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson in Concord, Massachusetts. My parents were anthropologists. Early on, they taught my brother and me the concept of culture and the value of understanding the ways of those raised differently from us. I tried to be myself and to be respectful of whatever culture in which I found myself. Here in this prison basement, that's what I was attempting to do. I grew up between a river and a swamp in deep woods that my father cleared just enough for us to view the slow-moving Sudbury River and its tantalizing opposite shore from the large picture windows of our house. I spent much of my childhood with my friends in those woods and on that river, absorbing both the wildness and peace that we needed. When I arrived at landscape painting as a young adult, I returned to this mystery, this drama of light and dark, of flowing water, woods, and meadows. In 1991, I was a guest artist at the Tupelo Workshop in South Africa, 
one of the first, if not the first, arts organizations in the country that was multiracial, with artists primarily from South Africa, some from other African countries, and a couple like me from farther away. I was invited by Sang Sam Langethwa, a South African artist who I met when we were both residents at the Triangle Visual Arts Residency in upstate New York. I supported the fight to end apartheid, and I was a landscape painter. He wanted the South African artists he knew would be there to have the experience of painting outdoors directly from nature, something that was new for them, particularly those from the townships. After the workshops, I traveled around the country and was transfixed by the varied landscapes I saw. I heard everyone I met, of whatever class or color, express a love of their country, an attachment to the incredible beauty of the land and the physical atmosphere. I thought about how the many struggles for human rights are a passionate desire for something so basic and so fundamental, to belong to a place and to live freely in it. Sam was right that this feeling of settling into place, of belonging through painting it, was important to share. Beautiful. So it was about landscape painting, but it was really about the sense of belonging. And prisoners are displaced, and there is no sense of belonging. In fact, in prison, everyone says, never call this your home. And one thing I always wondered was, how do you live in a place that isn't your home, and yet to be human, you have to find a way to feel like you have a home? And so I came to the conclusion that art making creates the sphere of home. Of, and in terms of landscape, what I realized was that, every, that landscape is a metaphor for the sense of belonging the great landscapes that we love. The horizon represents the future and possibility, and things in the foreground are tactile and rich with texture and, and kind of make us think of the things in our lives that, that we're connected to. And so all of this came together in the beginning of writing this book and led me into these stories. So in the book, there are 16 first-person stories by artists. I, when I began writing, I went around and interviewed people, artists, um, and the upshot of those was the stories that are in the book. So the book is my reflections and my ideas about art and resistance and their stories. And I worked cooperatively with them. In the process of writing the book, I would send material to various people and they would comment on it and say what they thought and send it back to me. So I never, you know, I had everything kind of checked by the authorities. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to feel like I was saying something that, you know, um, wasn't true. So in the end product, I, you know, I finally felt like, yeah, this was done by all of us. So let's talk. Um, you know, I'm glad you you mentioned uh, Buzz Alexander. Um, Buzz and Janie herself are legends in Michigan for doing this work, and they're known nationally. And I think Janie and I first met, well, actually, we pre-met. We met uh, 
the, my mentor, my, the great philosopher Maxine Green and I were invited to the art school at the University of Michigan. And I told Janie, one of the funniest thing is Maxine, 80 years old, you know, tiny little person, looks like a bag lady from Brooklyn. Um, she was in this hall with all these pierced and dyed and hip young artists. She still had the most you know, forward-looking mind in the room, incredible. But I'm, but that we met then, and then later, Buzz invited me to speak at the exhibition, and we met then as well. Uh, but Buzz, really, this book is also a tribute to to Buzz's yeah. work and your work together. Um, I guess I'd, but you know, I'd like to start. Well, let me say one word about Maxine Green, because. You talked a lot about the imagination, and one of the wonderful contributions that Maxine made was she wrote a lot, including an entire book, about what she called the social imagination. She said she used to say, it took a hell of an imagination to think up Auschwitz. You know, that was an imagination too, but that wasn't an imagination of liberation, an imagination of fairness, kindness, generosity, grace, and so on. So she always talked about the social imagination, the imagination as a collective asset. And I feel that in this book. I feel the, uh, you know, I think prison is a place, many of us have worked in prisons and relate to prisons. Prison is a place that hates relationships, hates intimacy, hates um, the social imagination, can't stand that if uh, three people are standing together talking about something. And this book kind of breaks that barrier. So I guess what I'd like you to talk about a little bit is the way in which imagination, the way you deploy it, the way you embrace it and encourage it, the way that it is an act of resistance, the way that art can be, and in your case really has been proven to be an act of resistance and liberation for the men, but for also for you. Um, so actually, um, the, the exhibition project that Buzz and I started in a way, in itself, was an act of resistance against the prison. It started very organically. Um, Buzz said to me, I moved to Michigan, and I was a visual artist, and he was a professor of literature and was doing theater workshops. He said, why don't we do an art show? So we did the first year. We just went around to, to prisons. We met people, and we were astounded by what we saw. And it became an annual event. And we started with I think 16 prisons and 70 artists. And now we're, we have work from 28 prisons. We have about 700 to 800 pieces of art a year and over 500 artists represented in every show. So the whole thing has grown exponentially and has been accepted by the Michigan Department of Corrections as a project that is ongoing. And one of the things that is so important is that because we've been there for the long haul, for 28 years, the artists expect that this is part of their life all the time. Um, and it's something that, as I said, mentioned with Danny Valentine and his getting out of the hole, you know, to make art, it sustains people. Um from year to year and for long, long sentences. Um, 
And the other thing is, the other way in which the exhibition itself is a mode of resistance is, as we all know, prison is about limitation and punishment. And we go in to open up spaces of freedom where people get to mingle and mix and talk and discuss. And that in itself is an act of resistance to create these spaces in this environment. And year after year, creating these spaces and having these dialogues gives the artists an intense amount of validation that makes the art as powerful as you see it. These artists are not in, in any classes. They're working on their own. And so they're, that kind of intense validation is creating this uh, immense growth. Now, one of the- Could I ask you quickly, yeah. though, the exhibition is every year. Yes. And could you say when it is and where it is? Yes, yes. Because Because I think people who are listening to this would want to know, are they invited? Can they come? Okay, t- talk a bit about, and, and then I'd like you to get into the two other aspects of of your project. So there's the big exhibition, there's the workshop project, yeah. and then there's the linkage yeah. project. Maybe you and, talk about all of those. Okay, and then I want to get right back to my resistance. Okay, good. Okay. We'll get, we're going to do resistance all night. So. Okay. We're going to resist, okay. Um, yeah, so the exhibition is a project of the Prison Creative Arts Project. If you think it's called PCAP. And it happens every March, toward the end of March, at the University of Michigan. Um, So if anybody is interested, you can try to remember, or I can remind you, you can always get in touch with me or Bill, uh, to look at the website for the Prison Creative Arts Project, and it'll tell about the exhibition. Uh, There's, as I said, there's like, you know, 700 pieces of art some some of it is in print bins um it's become you know a a real thing in michigan i mean people come from all over michigan to go to it people line up at the door to get in when the doors open because it's one of the only places you can get incredible art that's affordable and that most of the people who come to our shows aren't really wealthy people um they also want to support the artists and they know what this is about and what it means to artists. And at our opening reception, we have people, artists who have come home that year speak um, and sort of, sort of like testify, you know, and we film that and they're speaking into the camera to their comrades who are still in prison. Um, And then that video is edited and put into a, f- a film with a shot of every piece in the show. And then that's, that is sent into every prison in Michigan and shown over closed circuit TV. And I believe this is one of the reasons why the art has grown so much is that people can see each other's work and in fact become competitive with each other and say, oh, I can do that, I can do that better, you know, and get ideas from each other. Because people in prison can't write to each other. As as Bill was saying, prisons want to limit friendship and intimacy as much as possible. So the project is more than just the exhibition. It's these points of contact that we have all year long. But the exhibition, just to put a point on it, the exhibition, people come from all over Michigan. Some of us come from Chicago to see it because it is an extraordinary, it's not just affordable art. It's an extraordinary art 
show. And one of the one of the things that it does remarkably is it when Ronaldo Hudson was here, he talked about demonstrification, you know, taking away the stereotype of who folks are. And you see incredible works of art and incredible process. The other thing I would say about that exhibition is that I love the way you loop back into the prison, but this is an example of people supporting one another. And this is something that we see all the time at Stateville. They don't get support from the institution. They get support from each other. And and the support comes in remarkable ways. But we talk, you know, in the movement, we talk about self-care and, and mutual aid. This is self-care and mutual yeah, aid I in mean, high degree. That's really important, Bill, because one of the really important things to know is that there's a lot of mentoring and helping each other. People don't tend to think about that happening in prison. But I can't tell you how many people have said, oh, so-and-so taught me, or he was my student, you know, just informally. You know, somebody will be in the rec room sitting there drawing, and someone will come up to him and say, hey, can you teach me how to do make portraits? And sure, you know, I'll, I'll show you. And um, there have been some cases where prisons have allowed some of the um, people there to teach an art class. Um, so there is a lot of sharing. There's a lot of generosity. And what I see is the more skilled and more evolved artists become, the more generous they become and the more they want to give their knowledge to others. So there's just a huge culture of art going on in mm -hmm. the Michigan prisons mm -hmm. now. And the the um, officers and the staff think it's fine because for them, it's good for security. They know that artists don't cause trouble. And they don't. They just want to do their art. So they may not like it for the right reasons, but they're they're for it, yeah. you know. Um, so you wanted me to talk about the other aspect. Well, I, I think we can go back to artist resistance, but yeah. I do want you to touch on the three okay. projects. So. Yeah, so PCAP has three components. One is the exhibition, which is the most public-facing project of PCAF. Um, another big component are the workshops, and these are workshops in prisons, in theater, in writing, in music, in visual art. We're not allowed to do dance because apparently they don't like people moving around and touching each other. Um but maybe one day we'll be able to do that. Um, most of these workshops happen as a result of classes that are taught by faculty members. So for many years, I taught a class called Art Workshops in Prisons at the School of Art and Design, um, and where Liz Chisholm was a student and she went in to do, maybe you can talk later about your experience. Um, students go in and do workshops. Um, Buzz taught classes, um, and now I'm not teaching anymore, but other people are teaching classes. And then there are also, we welcome community members who are not students or faculty, but they have to get training. They're, they get training on the rules and regulations of prison, and they also get training on what our philosophy is. Because we're, we're very insistent that we're not in a charity mode. We're not going in to help people. We're, we are going in to create spaces in which we're all benefiting from our work together in solidarity with each other. And that's a very important philosophical um, 
basis. And it makes you different than a lot of prison projects because I hear you saying it is solidarity, not service. It's but not a lot service. of people, right? Because yeah. service brings with it all the patronizing. The other word I never use is rehabilitation. Right. Because I feel that it's our society that needs to be rehabilitated. I know. And I prefer to talk about people who are living in prison as growing and changing. We're not just suddenly making them into a different person. There's something in them, except for maybe a few psychopaths. But most people have something in them that can benefit from a situation in which they can grow. No, the psychopaths are in Congress. Yeah, the no, psychopaths that, yeah. are. Yeah, exactly. So I don't like to use the, it's not, we are not, we don't have the, it's not us having the power to rehabilitate someone. It's us being in solidarity with people so that they can, and we can all grow. And I certainly have grown from this experience as a person and as an artist. And, um, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I can say as much as the artist, but certainly a significant amount in my own life. I, I feel like I found what it was that I was supposed to do in my life. And having written this book, I feel uh -huh. like I, I did that. Not that I have, you know, I have many more things I want to do, but I feel that this experience of working with the artists, you know, gave me that and they gave me that. How do you hold on to the tension? One of the things that we feel, and I'm acknowledging Sarah Ross came in. She's a, an artist and one of the founders of PNAP, and she's an artist in Illinois state prisons. Um, but one of the things we talk about a lot is um, the ways in which we are, on some days, in some ways, instruments of the institution, uncomfortably. And we're also... Not that. I mean, how do you maintain, how do you dance that dialectic of being part of an institution that you really want to see abolished, and yet you kind of walk a certain walk in order to have access to, to participate in the kind of things that are important? Well, I think one of the important things about PCAP, and I think it's probably true of PNAP too, is that we're volunteer. We're not being paid by the Michigan Department of Correction. Right. And it's been very important for us to maintain that status as a, as a volunteer organization. We're not under the control of the MDOC. I mean, we abide by all the rules and we are, we are respectful to everyone. I mean, even the nastiest guard will say thank you to when they open the door and lead us to where we're going. Um, but I guess what I feel is that we're strategic. We're, we're, we're getting permission from the system to go in and then create spaces of freedom. Mm -hmm. And the ability to create spaces of freedom is much more important than, you know, what we're doing with the MDOC, or not more important, but it's it's the end goal. And so, um, I mean, I, I, I heard Ruthie Gilmore, the great abolitionist, say, you know, we want to abolish prisons, but, but that doesn't mean that we don't go into prisons to do things that may, that help people be, remain human beings. I mean, I believe that we need to uh, be in solidarity with the effort to, for people to, maintain and grow their own humanity and if we we have to we have to go inside in order to do that 
Um, and so we have to walk that line. Yeah. You know, the, the, you're saying, some of the things you're saying are just generating propulsions in my mind. I mean, one is one is this uh, growing your humanity. This was very much a theme of Grace Lee Boggs, the right. great Detroit revolutionary. But the other thing that came to my mind when you were talking about spaces of freedom was Gwendolyn Brooks, the great Chicago poet, um, who wrote a book, uh, who wrote a poem called Boy Breaking Glass about a, boy, a bad boy, a juvenile delinquent. In the middle of the poem, she turns and and kind of channels the words of the boy himself. And the line is, I shall create, if not a note, then a whole, if not an overture, then a desecration, but I shall create. And you think about the human impulse to create. And here, one way I think about you when you say, use the term creating spaces of freedom or spaces where freedom can come to sit, I think about creating spaces where notes and overtures are possible. Not for sure, but there are possibilities. And you create the space for that. You don't create those notes and overtures, but you create the space where freedom can come and find a chair. That's a great way of saying it. Thank you. Talk more about resistance in art and how you see it. And freedom. I mean, you you read me a piece about freedom earlier, but which was very moving. This is a you know this podcast is called a seminar on freedom so we get we get we talk a lot about questions of freedom and entanglement so well okay so yeah I'll, I'll uh the, what what I was what Bill's referring to is I read him a, p- a paragraph from John Berger one of John Berger's books John Berger's a great writer about art and politics and life and everything um and I'll read that after I just describe my way of thinking about resistance. Um, So how is art making a a form of resistance? Um, The main way that I see this um, is that when you create your own sphere, your own world within your prison cell, and you're interacting with an object, you're creating an intimacy with that object. And even though it's not alive, there's a dialogic back and forth that's going on. And you move from being an object in the in the eyes of the prison system, an object to be moved around and caged and brutalized, some someone without a name but with a number. You're an object in the world of prison. You move from being an object to being the subject of your world to having a great deal of choice. Even the, even D'Artagnan Little, who was in level five, making, you know, these figures out of toilet paper and melting construction paper, those were very ingenious choices. And every part of the process of art making is a series of choices and prison doesn't allow for much choice. So, whether it's just, you know, you're in the hall and you all you have is one little thing to do, but you still have all these choices and you're still the subject of your world. And I think that's really important and I think that's an act of resistance. It's also an act of resistance to become visible and to become an individual rather than a number. And the exhibition helps with this, obviously, because we're bringing the individual's work out into the world and putting their name up 
you know, on the wall and having them write an artist statement so that they're, they're becoming visible. Another, another way is that, you know, artists, I showed you the mermaid that was made out of toilet paper and glue. And, you know, people make paintings sometimes if they don't have materials, they might use a piece of cardboard from a carton, uh, floor wax for a primer, you know, a couple of paints that they have, um, or, you know, people who are making sculptures out of cardboard and soap, they're turning waste into value. And I think that's a kind of metaphor for the artists themselves, that they are considered the waste material of society, and they're making value by creating the work, whether it's with found materials or store-bought materials. Um, and so in all these ways, those are the modes of resistance that happen. And also, there's a section in the book um, where I, I kind of do a sequence of um, images and talk about uh, how art-making in prison is a way of satisfying unmet needs. So the need for love and affection may lead to a picture of a mother and a child or two lovers so that the, the subject matter of the work becomes um, uh, an embodiment of a, of a need that's been unmet but that can be met in the artwork itself. Or um, um, the need for connection to nature by creating landscapes or the need for uh, skill and technical ability with, you know, incredibly skilled uh, work and so forth. So it's both the subject matter in that way and the other modes that I just described, uh, which have more to do with identity and, and inner freedom that, that constitute resistance. And I, I just, you know, how things are so, can be so synchronous sometimes. I was thinking, okay, I need to bring a small book with me on the train to Chicago. And I looked at, looked at my books, and I have a lot of books by John Berger because I love his writing, but I hadn't read this one. So I picked it up, and I read this, and it's like exactly what I'm talking about. He says, not all desires lead to freedom, but freedom is the experience of a desire being acknowledged, chosen, and pursued. Desire never concerns the mere possession of something, but the changing of something. Desire is a wanting, a wanting now. Freedom does not constitute the fulfillment of that wanting, but the acknowledgement of its supremacy. Wow. For the most part, people living in prison can't keep artwork with them. It has to be sent out. Uh, everything that you own has to fit into your footlocker or duffel bag. That's one reason, but they also just don't want it accumulating. So... You know, aside from the pieces that go in our show or before the show existed, they would just send it home to family or friends. Everything had to be sent out. There is a huge commercial art culture in prison that consists mostly of making greeting cards and portraits and tattooing. Um, and those are bought and sold, often bartered for store goods. But when artists start making, you know, actual pieces of art on canvas or sculpture, um, 
they're also can be bought and sold. There's a there's a specific way that they filling out form that a that another prisoner or an officer can buy a work of art. And that happens. And that's I think related to your question, which is that officers a lot of the times buy art from the prisoners or they commission them to do portraits. Um and um wardens i mean it becomes a, it's a whole marketplace that's going on so um with the show um one of the difficulties is that for security reasons artwork that goes out cannot come back in for fear that somebody might embed drugs in the pastels or something like that so once the art comes out if it if it sells in our exhibition, then of course it goes to the buyer and the person gets the, uh, the artist gets money deposited into their account. And that's a really important part is that they're making money from, from this exhibition. The work that's in the show that doesn't sell has to be, then we have to send it. And it takes us all summer practically to sell all, send all the unsold work to their contact person. So anyone who's in a show has to provide a contact for the work to be sent to. You know, we had a, a graduation recently where five students got college degrees from our program. Most extraordinary commencement you've ever seen. Uh, but one of the brilliant things that the leadership came up with was as a gift, each guy got a portrait of himself in whatever dress he wanted, painted by a Chicago portrait artist. And then we made 50 copy, 50 postcards of the poster and gave it to the families. So people who were being made invisible were suddenly legible. And it was a brilliant thing. But one of my favorite students got up during commencement to give his talk. And he said, I am so proud that I have a college degree. And you all should know that I can't bring that degree into my cell. And I can't bring this portrait into my cell. So those things have to go out. And he said, that's part of the cruelty of, and I, and I think it's important that you know, you know that we live in a mass incarceration state. If you've not been to prison, when I take, like when I took my daughter-in-law who co-taught with me this year, she had a migraine after every visit. She could not believe the congealed cruelty and violence that was just there. And it was just assumed. You know, and and you had talked about aesthetics and the value of creating a free space for aesthetics. The rap artist Fat Boy was interviewed for the oral history Rikers, and one of the brilliant things he said was, "I was born in Rikers because the housing project I grew up in, the school I went to, and Rikers Island must have had the same architect because that's the that's the architecture of my life mm -hmm. and uh it's kind of staggering so i urge you if you haven't been to a prison you must find a way to see it because it's all around us it's a huge gulag across the country it's we're always within 20 miles of a prison and uh you should find out what's there i i we're running out of time and i have to ask you one more thing which is you know, you made, I think, an important point about not being a social worker, being an artist, not being a charity worker, but being uh, a comrade uh, in solidarity. What is your North Star in this work? What do you, what would be the ideal for you a year, five years, 10 years from now? Where are we headed, ideally? What are we working toward? 
turn the prisons into art studios. Right on. That's exactly, that, I think that's exactly right. And, and you could say it in a lot longer way, but that's a perfect <laughs> way to say it. I think we're going to stop. Uh, Janie will be here to talk with you to sign books. We can stick around and have a conversation. We should stop for the purposes of sitting like this. But thank you all so much for coming in. Thank you, Janie Paul. <laughs> Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can toward joy and justice, peace and freedom. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the generative and provocative podcast, Ergo, co-conspirators Roxana Espos and Pallas Shaw. And thanks to Bernadine Dorn. We typically begin each episode with a poem, but this time we'll go out with a poem. This is Higher Ground by Stevie Wonder, performed by the wondrous Playing for Change, songs around the world.
last time I earned, I left the whole world of sin. I'm so glad that I know more than I knew then. Gonna keep 